Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. More trouble in Belfast tonight where rioters have been blasted with a water cannon by the police following today's condemnation by all sides of the violence. We'll have political reaction from the north of the border with SDLP leader Colm Eastwood and the DUP's Jim Wells in just a moment. And by our panel here in studio, Minister of State for Employment Affairs and Retail Damien English and Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly. Later in the programme, milestone one million to vaccine administered as experts review AstraZeneca guidance here. And will the vaccinated be granted special access to hairdressers and shops before the rest of the public? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Earlier today, following an emergency meeting, the Northern Ireland Executive condemned the unacceptable violence of the past few nights, which has left 55 police officers injured. We're joined now by the leader of the SDLP, Colm Eastwood. Colm, it seems things are flaring up again tonight on the Springfield Road in Belfast. Who do you hold responsible for all of what's happening? Well, I think tensions have been building for quite a number of months, uh, Matt, uh, as far back as the, the Brexit protocol. Uh, was announced, and actually Brexit has been uh, the real instigator of this trouble. It has destabilised uh, the political situation in the North over the past number uh, of years. And then, of course, we saw uh, the issue around the Bobby Story funeral and the, the, the lack of prosecutions around that. Um, but our view is very clear. There, there are political uh, means for dealing with any, any issues that people have. We're willing to speak to anybody about how we resolve any of these difficulties, but there is no solution in handing petrol bombs to 11-year-olds and asking them to throw them at the police uh, or their neighbours. Yeah, how dispiriting is that to see children being sent out by adults to do their bidding and to be applauded from the sidelines? Uh, it's absolutely uh, depressing, Matt. The, 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 these are uh, children who remember nothing uh, of, the, of, of the troubles or even the Good Friday Agreement. They were born long after. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but I, I think it's a symptom of the fact that we haven't dealt with many of the economic issues uh, in some of these communities. We haven't dealt with the, the poverty and the joblessness and the hopelessness that many of these people feel. And we also haven't dealt with the fact that there are paramilitary organisations there ready and willing uh, to whip up this tension and to use young people. And I've seen it so many times myself. Uh, it, is, it is the people standing around the corner uh, directing operations uh, they're not the people who end up getting uh, lifted by the police or hit with water cannon or hit with uh, uh, rubber bullets or, any, or plastic bullets or anything else. Um, that's, uh, that, that, that is a state, going to be a stain on many of these young people's lives going forward. So they have to get off the streets and, and, and recognise the only way to solve our problems is to work together. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the only solution there ever has been. 
there's a very difficult relationship clearly between the DUP and Sinn Féin, but how unhelpful was Arlene Foster's tweet last night in condemning the violence and using it as an opportunity to have another go at Sinn Féin? Look, it was, it was very strange. In the, in the middle of uh, the difficulties that we were seeing being played out on the streets, um, it was just the wrong approach. You have to be absolutely unequivocal in, in your condemnation, in my view, of this kind of activity, no matter who's doing it. So it's nationalist use tonight uh, on the Springfield Road. I'm absolutely unequivocal uh, that those young people need to get off the streets and stop this violence because it's their own community that they're harming. I think part of the problem has been over the past number of weeks and months, there hasn't been an awful lot of honesty uh, from some politicians, from the British Prime Minister uh, to the DUP to some others, in describing what Brexit actually meant for them uh, and describing what was going to come as a result of the protocol, and also trying to turn a political crisis into a policing crisis, as Arlene Foster did last week, was, was just not clever and very dangerous in the streets. But I think today we've seen uh, a bit of a shift. We've seen all of the politicians coming together, beginning to uh, speak with one voice against this violence. And I think that is positive. We have to latch on to that. We have to try to send that message uh, to the streets and hope that people uh, will listen. But unfortunately, when this uh, gets out of the bottle, it's very hard to put it back in. Briefly, I know the political party is going to meet with the British Northern Secretary tomorrow in relation to this, but is this going to be yet another example of the politicians of the North being unable to deal with issues for themselves and having to look to Britain and Ireland to sort things out for them? Well, unfortunately, we have this trouble's been going on for about nine days and we haven't uh, heard tell of, uh, of the British Secretary of State until uh, today. Uh, that's no way to manage this, this issue. The peace process never really finishes. It needs to have the two governments being the, the co-guarantors and constantly minding that process. That is just the system that we have. That's the fragility of our process. So it is important that both governments are, are very involved in solving these problems. There are still a lot of unanswered questions and unresolved issues that need to be sorted. And it can't happen, frankly, without the two governments. Colin Eastwood, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. Thank you. Well, we're joined now here in studio by Minister of State for Employment Affairs and Retail, Damien English, and by Sinn Féin TD, Louise O'Reilly, and also via Skype by the DUP MLA, Jim Wells. And Jim, if I can start with you, because Arlene Foster certainly seemed to stir things up a lot in the last week, first looking for the Chief Constable to go because the Crown Prosecution Service hadn't brought charges against Sinn Féin members over the Bobby Story funeral. And then in her tweet last night, bringing in Sinn Féin's criminality, as she called it, into something that had nothing to do with them. Is she rowing back a little bit from those positions now today to try and cool the tempers a bit? Well, I think, of course, Arlene issued a statement today which was very clear in condemning violence. And I think we all welcome the joint communication by all of the executive parties saying that we must respect the rule of law, we must make sure that these attacks on the police and on private property stop immediately, and I was up at Stormont today and the Assembly unanimously supported um, calls for peace on our streets. So things have moved on and I think we're in a better place. But do remember that a catalyst for all of this was the disgraceful decision not to prosecute those who took part in the Sinn Féin funeral on the 30th of June 2020 when 2,000 people gathered to mourn the death of Bobby Story. Meanwhile, 22,000 other families in Northern Ireland had lost loved ones and they were restricted to 15 people. And that caused absolute uproar in the community. 
and we still haven't got resolution of that very difficult issue. So I think to some extent, Ireland is reflecting the huge frustration amongst the unions community about A, the misconduct of Sinn Féin and also some of the activities of the chief constable. And it's not just the Bobby Story's funeral that's caused a lot of concern. Louise O'Reilly, what do you make of Jim Wells suggesting this is all Sinn Féin's fault? Uh, well, of course it's not. And I don't even think uh, that Jim is actually suggesting that. Um, I think today we saw all of the parties in the executive uh, take a step back, um, particularly uh, political unionism, because that is absolutely required. Uh, we don't want to see violence on our streets. And, you know, we have to say, um, I want to express my solidarity uh, with those people who are in their homes right now, who are absolutely terrified out of their wits. They don't want this. The majority of people in the North do not want this violence. And let's not forget, there are 55 members of the police service injured. There have been at least one photographer um, and we know uh, one bus worker. Um, you know, so this has to stop. This is not a solution. That is, this is not an answer in and of itself. Are you worried that it's spreading itself. that when it's on the Springfield Road that now you're going to have nationalist youth who are going to behave in exactly the same way. No, because way. you see on the Springfield Road, what you'll see is Sinn Féin activists on the ground in their community diffusing that situation, talking to the young people, trying to turn them away from that, uh, you know, from, from being on the streets and getting them to go home because that's what should be happening at the moment. And then there needs to be a collective response to this, absolutely. But if you look at what's happening on the on the Springfield Road, well, certainly as I was, was coming in, uh, what I was looking at on social media was Sinn Féin activists diffusing that situation on the ground, talking to people in their communities and ensuring that their communities are kept safe because keeping people safe in their communities has to be an absolute top priority. And that's what our activists are doing. That is leadership. That is leadership in action. Jim Wells, isn't the truth of it all, the catalyst for this is not what happened last summer, but what happened back in 2016 and the Brexit vote and the consequences flowing from that, particularly the border down the Irish Sea, that you're actually now reaping what you were responsible for sowing. Well, that wasn't, of course, the Brexit that we supported and voted for. Uh, the, the protocol was introduced in October 2019 at a very late stage, and that's caused huge concern amongst the unionist community. And there's no doubt there's a series of issues which have undermined unionist confidence. But the Bobby story incident has really got under the skin of the entire community. And it would help if the representative from Sinn Féin tonight would say, look, folks, we got that wrong. We made a dreadful mistake and it won't happen again. And that hasn't happened. And that would do so much to diffuse a very difficult situation. Louise, do you want to briefly respond? Because I do want to go back to yeah, Brexit. The, so um, nine months on, uh, it seems quite incredulous that uh, that violence would would break out from an in, uh, from an event that happened nine months on. We all heard Michelle O'Neill and others, uh, you know, express their uh, make their apologies. They've done so, and they've done it uh, time and time again. And look, Colm Eastwood said it, and I do agree with him. You know, the, it, that was not the catalyst for what is happening in the north at the moment. So we need to focus on keeping people safe in their communities, ensuring that the violence is diffused. And of course, I mean, the policing board exists. If there are issues that have to be teased out, that is the place for that accountability. That needs to that needs to take place. So, I mean, what we want to hear from uh, political unionism is 
that they are going to proactively defuse this situation, that they are going to finally provide some leadership within their own communities, because that's what Sinn Féin is doing in the north right now. Jim Wells, do you not have to accept, though, that if you had a situation where it was the case that you accepted or supported Boris Johnson and his hard Brexit outlook, that when he and his Queen's government decided on the protocol and signed an international treaty with the EU to that effect, that you have to accept that, that that's what your government decided was best for you? And that's something we opposed all along. We had an agreement with Boris Johnson and he reneged on it. But just going to go back to, to Louise uh, Kelly, could I just say to her, will she give us an undertaking tonight that there will be no repeat of the disgraceful situation that arose on the 30th of June 2020? Will she at least tell us there will be no more shows of strength at Republican funerals in the future and that they will obey the law which they instigated through the Northern Ireland Executive? I want to go back to Damien English, bring him in in relation to this. And what about the meeting or the phone call tonight between Taoiseach, Micheál Martin and Boris Johnson? Can we really trust Boris Johnson to do anything to get us out of this mess, given that he's responsible for creating most of it? Well, I think the real success of getting out of this uh, and not going back to where we were many years ago, it will be political leaders and community leaders uh, on the ground in Northern Ireland and playing their part and trying to dry down the rhetoric and move away from... I would say, unhelpful interventions over the last number of years. Brexit, of course, hasn't helped, has fueled the tensions. But there's a protocol in place there that needs a little bit of time to work out. And I think Northern Ireland can benefit greatly from that. But all political leaders from all sides need to work with their communities to work through that process, not take advantage of any situation, which we've seen upon occasion over the last three or four years. That's not helpful. And I think the, the, both their, our own government here, Tisha Michael Martin and Boris, they've a role to play, of course. But it's the, it's, it's the main political parties on the ground in the north to have to continuously work to bring their communities with them. And to, Sorry, does that and suggest you think that this issue about the protocol, which a lot of people say brings sovereignty into uh, play, is not actually going to be something important to sorting this all of out. Of course, the protocol is, but I'm saying the protocol is one of opportunity. But it takes time to, to for everyone to see the benefits of that, and it wasn't given the time um, because you know it was there. It, it came all the the Brexit agreements at the end came very close to the end of at the start of January. And then it takes time for a protocol to kick in to fully work through. But I don't think we had the full political leadership on the ground to 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 get communities of all age groups to 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 work with the system for the protocol to benefit. I think Northern Ireland has a great opportunity from access to both the EU market uh, and to the UK market. Well, let me go back to, to Jim Wells on this. time to prove that. And that will deal with some of the poverty, some of the job shortages, some of the many issues there that will help heal this. But I do think rhetoric from all sides over the last few years have, have, have brought, the, brought the tensions onto the streets. OK, Jim Wells, given the assurances you've had from Boris Johnson in the past, most famously that he would under no circumstances allow a border down the middle of the Irish Sea and then went and implemented it, do you have any trust in him at this stage to look after the interests of unionists? We'd only judge him by his actions and we we're bitterly disappointed by what he did. And I would just say to your panellists, would Donegal accept a border at Ballyshannon where goods would be checked coming in to Donegal? Of course they wouldn't because Donegal is an integral part of the Irish Republic. And people talk to us about the benefits of, of the situation we're in. The problem is that this will ruin our economy before we ever get a chance to see those benefits, if they even exist. And it's causing mayhem, for instance, with people who are importing horticultural products. And once the derogation on meat unwinds, we're going to have huge problems. 
And at the end of the year, the derogation on medicines also unwinds, and that's going to cause massive difficulties. It is just totally unacceptable, the situation we're in. And that has caused tension. And I think the Bobby Story funeral was the We've final straw. the Bobby Story funeral at least five times at this stage. Louise O'Reilly, if I can I ask you I, in relation I, I would... to whether Sinn Féin's consistently bringing up a referendum on unification at the moment is actually wise given the tensions that are operating in unionism? Well, we would be foolish not to talk about it, Matt, because everybody is talking about it. So Brexit uh, has done, uh, you know, has brought it into, I suppose, stark relief for people uh, that Irish unity makes sense. It does, but it makes sense now for us to start a conversation about it, for us to plan and not to do uh, what, the, what, uh, what was done with regard to Brexit to go into something blindly, but actually to start the conversation now and to begin to plan for Irish unity, to begin that conversation. And that has to happen in every single one of the 32 counties on this island. And I believe it's happening already, Matt. So what we need now is for... Uh, others uh, others in, in positions of political leadership to catch up with where people are already. Let's not forget the people in the North did not vote for Brexit. They voted to remain within the European Union. And I have spoken to, to business leaders, leaders North and South, and they talk about the possibilities that the protocol creates. Of course, there's problems. There's no such thing as a good Brexit for the people on this island. However, the protocol does provide people with okay. an opportunity to, to, to build and uh, to, to do business. Last word on this, Chief you, Jim Wells, the meeting between the party leaders and the Secretary of State tomorrow, what do you expect will come out of it? Well, I think it's important. I think Brandon Lewis should have come back to Northern Ireland long before now. I think it's absolutely vital that he joins with the political leadership in saying that the violence we're seeing tonight in Belfast and in Londonderry and other places more recently does nothing for anybody in Northern Ireland. All it does is put young men in prison with criminal records and damages our community. Northern Ireland is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. We want to attract people to come to the province. How on earth can we do that when they're seeing what you're seeing on your TV screens tonight? Jim Wells, thank you very much for joining us here on The Tonight Show. We're now going to move to the issue of vaccinations and particularly the concerns that have been brought up in relation to the AstraZeneca vaccine. And NIAC is looking at the efficacy of it and particularly concerns in relation to whether it might be dangerous for young women. When can we expect some sort of clarification on this particular issue? I think Nike have said that they'd spend another, another, some more time today and tomorrow reviewing this and would give their updated advice in the days ahead. I think it's important to do their work right. They've been, in, they've been looking over these cases, not just this week, but previously as well and other occasions as well. And I've always taken a very pragmatic approach and very honest and public approach to this. So, Because I, mean, I think it's important that we always have confidence in our vaccination rollout and vaccination strategy and the choice of vaccines used. So it's important to do the work and do it carefully because we have to keep trust in the system and confidence in the system. So I think if it takes another day for them to give their advice, bear in mind we've had the advice from the European authorities in the last day or two as well, which still says and still recommends the use of this vaccine and the rollout of it. So I think that's important. Louise, is this caution justified and acceptable? Well, I think confidence is absolutely key. So where there's a question, uh, NIAC need to come in and be able to answer that and answer it comprehensively. I listened with interest uh, this morning to uh, the woman, and I apologise now because I've forgotten her name, the doctor who is an expert in blood clots. And she was very, very clear that uh, blood clots are one of the side effects of the symptoms of COVID. And in her estimation, from what I could hear, well, you're far more at risk if you catch COVID than if you, uh, if you take a vaccine to prevent. But... 
we need that confidence and that requires for all information to be shared and shared quickly. And, and as Damien has said, that's going to happen. That's good. Uh, and if it is a case that a decision has to be taken, you know, with regard to specific age cohorts or gender cohorts or whatever way it is, that decision needs to be taken and communicated well and communicated effectively, because the last thing we need is to undermine confidence, because we know that there's been enough troubles yeah. with the rollout of the vaccine already. We need to, for people to have confidence. Absolutely. And that requires the scientists and the doctors coming together and being honest with people and saying, you know, estimating what the risks are and all the rest and ins yeah, ensuring think, that we have that yeah, confidence. I think Matt, to be very clear here, no one's, um, since that stands back from making an important decision, previously on a Sunday morning, mm -hmm. we made a change immediately on the advice from health authorities. So no one's afraid to make that decision. If it's proven that we have to act, we of course we will act. Uh, but it'll, it'll be based on NIAC's advi advice. And that's what we've done on previous occasions as well, because public safety is number one here. That's what this is about. But in a situation whereby somebody might say that they don't want the AstraZeneca vaccine mm. because they have certain concerns about it, should they be allowed to opt for a different vaccine? That's something that was discussed back in, in November when we, uh, when we put together the first uh, vaccination rollout strategy and that was dealt with. And people were not at that stage said that they'd be given a choice of vaccine. Our health authorities make the recommendation of each category of which but vaccine is But as the circumstances suitable. change, would you consider well, if, changing that it, position? Again, that's advice you would take from health authorities. I don't see that advice coming forward at the moment. But if, at, at any stage, when it comes to administration of vaccines and the choice of what vaccine to use, we have based that on health and medical advice. And of course, we will continue to do, to do that. Would it be practical to offer people effectively a shopping list of vaccines? I think people would be delighted if they were offered a vaccine, uh, to be honest with you, Matt, never mind a shopping list. Uh, I still don't know when I'm going to get mine. But anyway, uh, I think the, the important thing is that, uh, that confidence is there. And I don't think that it's going to be helpful to suggest to people that there's going to be a shopping list. It's clearly, uh, th that's clearly not the situation at the moment. But I think if the scientists and the doctors together are honest and upfront with people as they have been and they should continue to be. And if quest people have questions, that they get those questions answered and that they have the time uh, to make up their own mind. I mean, certainly what we want is as many people as is possible to get the vaccine into their arm. We've been told by the government, uh, you know, that this is our passport out uh, of this uh, pandemic. It's the, they've placed all of our eggs in a vaccine-shaped basket. So, you know, but we what really could do... could they really have done? Well, we could have done uh, with in relation to mandatory quarantine, we could have kept the virus there. We could have done no, but uh, I think, you, you I think, can scoff at that, reason. Damien. But I mean, it's, I think, it's I think true. I think you can see all over Europe. I'm not trying to. Sorry, Damien. Let me finish. No, I'm not trying I, to kid anyone. I think it's anyone. wrong to give the impression that any kind of quarantine would be able to stop the spread of a virus the way it has throughout Europe and in Ireland. The best way to guarantee that we can reopen safely and once and for all is a vaccination rollout. Thankfully, we're heading into the second quarter now, where we know we're going to have over three million doses of the vaccine administered, which gives protection to by mid-May to anybody who is vulnerable. I want to come back to the mandatory well. quarantine issue in the next yeah. part of the programme, but we are joined now by the Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University, Paul Moyna. And Paul, what do you make of these developments in relation to the investigation into the AstraZeneca situation and also the reports in the Irish Times tonight that there has been a case in the Matter Hospital of a 40-year-old woman who has had the feared reaction to the vaccine? Yeah, so good evening, Matt. So there seems to be an association with these very rare forms of uh, clotting. So these are clotting events in certain parts of the body, the brain and the spleen. So these are veins that drain blood from, from the brain, the face uh, and the spleen. If you look across Europe and the UK so far, there have been about 34 million vac vaccinations with AstraZeneca and there have been about 220 reported cases potentially associated 
with the vaccination. So that's a frequency of about one one hundred and fifty thousand. So the reports this evening. So so far in Ireland, we've vaccinated just over with two hundred thousand doses of the AstraZeneca. So that frequency, even though it remains to be confirmed, but that frequency is probably consistent with what we seem to be seeing across Europe and the UK. And is it the case that with any vaccine that you actually will have a small number of adverse reactions like you have with medicines and that to expect it to be flawless would actually be ridiculous? Yeah, you'll always have some uh, side effects, but actually of all medicines, vaccines are the safest. If you look at some of the other vaccines, for example, the Pfizer, Moderna, there are some local uh, side effects there, you know, at the site of infection. Also early on, there was some focus in terms of other more common types of clotting. But when you look at the frequency of those clotting events, they're similar to the frequency in the background population that haven't been uh, vaccinated. But by and large, if you look and you compare the benefits versus risks and European medicines agencies has still recommended that the benefits far outweigh the risk. Now that difference tends to narrow somewhat as you get younger, because these rare events seem to be more associated with people, usually women, under the age of 50. And obviously with decreasing age, the risk associated with COVID decreases, but this risk seems to increase. But nonetheless, again, there's quite a significant difference in terms of benefits versus risk. And the EMA has recommended continued use of this across all age groups. But Paul, given that we're going to have over the next few months a massively increased supply of vaccines coming from a number of different sources, should we be following the example of the UK and indeed Northern Ireland in saying, don't give the AstraZeneca to the under 30s or Australia say the under 50s? Should we actually say just for those age cohorts, go with a different vaccine? Yeah, so that's a decision that could be made, uh, Matt. So a number of countries are looking at that and recommending or at least offering, for example, in the UK, alternative vaccines such as the Pfizer to those under the age of 30. So that, that is something, you know, that, that could be looked at. Also, the question is for those who have already received the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, what will they uh, be vaccinated with for the second dose? Now, it should be highlighted that so far these rare events have only been associated with the first dose. Now, whether that's due to the fact that it's uniquely associated with the first dose or whether it, that sufficient numbers haven't been vaccinated as of yet with the second dose, that remains to be seen. Another option maybe for second doses would be to use a different type of vaccine. And again, the, the potential problem with that is that when this was licensed, it was only licensed for the two doses being of the same vaccine. But there are scientific reasons why actually two different vaccines could produce an even better effect. But if you were to go down that road, trials haven't been performed and that would have to be performed off label and that would introduce additional complications around indemnity. Okay. So there are, there are di different options open to, to different countries. A final one to you briefly, Paul, while you have it. It's something we'll be discussing in the last part of the programme, this idea of a vaccine bonus, that when people are vaccinated, or indeed if they can show they've already had COVID, that they would almost be allowed to resume normal life going to all of the events they did previously. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'd be in favour of that, man. I, I think we have to move, rather than waiting for an all or none, and waiting for everybody to be vaccinated. I think we're in such a situation now where we have to open up, obviously in a cautioned and cautious and prudent manner. And one way in which we can do that is to begin to, you know, lift some of the restrictions for those who are uh, protected. And as you say, not only for those who are vaccinated, but also 
for those who've been previously infected, we now we now know, and there's really good data showing that if you've been previously infected, you get quite long-term immunity. So, for example, if you can show you've got antibodies and potentially even show maybe with a negative test. So I think these are all options that should be explored because we, we need to begin to open up society, open up businesses. And again, rather than waiting for an, an all or none and waiting for the entire population to be vaccinated, I think we need to move in a, in a cautious way, step by step. Thank you very much, Paul Moyner, for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Louise O'Reilly and Damien English are staying with us. And after the break, minimum wage workers have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And the US, France and Germany to be added to the mandatory quarantine list. But is it too little too late? Welcome back. Minister of State Damien English and Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly are still with us. And we're going to move to the issue now of the mandatory quarantines, which has certainly been a bone of contention at government between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, particularly between Health Minister Stephen Donnelly and the Minister for Foreign Affairs Simon Coveney. Does it look like Fine Gael now are giving way on this by allowing Germany, France, the United States and other countries to be added to the list of countries in which mandatory quarantine will be required? I think, Matt, it's not about personalities, it's about various departments that have a role in, in the decision-making around this. So on the back of public health advice, the Department of Health and the Department of Foreign Affairs are meant to sit down and tease through uh, the, the mechanisms to add countries to the list and what that means for the capacity of the system and so on. And that's what they've done over the last week. Last Friday, there was a decision made to announce uh, to increase a number of countries on the list. And I understand then that Cabinet next week will add some more countries to the list. But that's a process that we set down on the legislation to have both those departments leading the discussions around that. But I have to bear in mind too, it, hotel quarantine is only one tool in, in the system of, of how, trying to prevent the spread of a virus. What's more important is the restrictions on travel. Travel is down to about 95, down by 95%. Anybody coming into the country has to have a negative PCR test. Also has to go into quarantine in their own house here already. So the hotel quarantine is in addition but to... Sorry, in the first week after mandatory quarantine was introduced, we still had 14,000 people coming yeah, into and, the country. And 40% of those were non-essential travel. Ten, and you have about 10,000, but it's down to, down to about 95% of what it was. And this is something that we'd reviewed on numerous occasions during last year as well. And, we, you know, we didn't feel that introducing hotel quarantine was necessary. But in response to what Isn't happened Isn't it amazing, to you, though, all the times where you actually say that you have to follow the public health advice, but then on something like this, mm. you didn't? Again, in response to what happened during December, we made changes to their quarantine rules, for both hotel and at home in people's houses as well, in January, to respond to the variants around the world. And that's what we're trying to do. And again, that's what the list reflects, trying to deal with potential new variants coming in from different countries. And that's what we are responding to do. And like with all the public health advice, we sit down as a cabinet and tease that through and implement what we think is right. OK, for Louise, country. is that not fair enough that the government should actually take advice and consider it rather than just accepting it without actually giving it any consideration? But I mean, we know that Neffet have, have recommended uh, full mandatory quarantine and, and a much, much stronger system. And we know they've been recommending that for a while. So I, I'm, I'm at a loss to understand where, uh, you know, what further consideration is going to be required. Clearly, there are variants of concern that exist outside uh, off of this island um, and we don't want to import them. The best way to do that is one that nobody uh, travels here unless it's absolutely essential. So we already know, as 
you have alluded to, out of the 14,000 uh, that came in, 40% or more uh, were for non-essential reasons. So we know that people are travelling for non-essential reasons. We know they're coming back into this country. And we also know that uh, quarantining at home is a joke. Uh, there's nobody monitoring it. it. It's not going to work. It hasn't worked because while the whole quarantine at home thing was in place, we were importing uh, the B117 and other variants. So I think that the, the bickering that we saw, and it was played out in the airwaves, and I think that was a, a bit embarrassing probably for the government, but the bickering that we have seen in relation to mandatory hotel quarantine is really, really unedifying for people. What we want to see is unity of purpose, and we want to see the government following the public health advice, taking seriously the public health advice, and taking seriously the fact that we don't want to import these strains. So we know that, I mean, absolutely, uh, you know, travel is down, aviation travel uh, is down, and aviation workers in the industry are on their knees. But there is a task force report, but we find out today in the currency, the government have only implemented two out of the 12 recommendations. So we need to, to secure our aviation sector. We need to save those jobs and we need to make sure that we protect that connectivity. But for the moment, so how do you what do we that if do, you stop flights coming into the country? But we need to keep the industry on life support so that it is there uh, immediately following. So we need to look at the recommendations of the Aviation Task Force, the task force set up by the government. Only two of those recommendations have been implemented. There are 10 more to go. So we want to see those but implemented. Would that involve giving money to the likes of Ryanair? Not necessarily, but it does involve ensuring that, uh, you know, that where supports are available, that they are given to ensure that we maintain the connectivity. So it's not about one specific airline. It is about well, our connectivity. Well, it is the biggest airline coming in and out of the country. Why have only two of these 12 recommendations been acted upon? Again, I mean, that, that, that's a task force that set up a number of months ago to look at all the issues. And part of that is from, as, we, as we reopen and as we roll out the vaccination programme and we have introduced the green start at the European level as well because some of the recommendations are about... But surely, surely we have to have the airlines there too along exactly. the reopening. And, and, and so doesn't that mean yes, that rather than waiting until been, the reopening there has that they been need support now? through some of the airlines and there's been on, ongoing negotiations with the Department of Finance about access to some of the funds that have been announced. There is the wage subsidy, uh, again, being, being available in those sectors as well. But there's other issues there but a part of that too was keeping routes open. And we bear in mind, we are the first and only European country to go down the route of hotel quarantine. Uh, and that's a decision we didn't want to, to, to take during 2020. We purposely didn't go down that road because we want to keep ourselves and our position in the, in the European market and single market and free movement of people open for as long as we possibly could. We want to protect Ireland's future and access to, to markets all over the world. So we cautiously uh, introduced that in January in response to what happened in December. So when, when, when necessary, we make those changes. Uh, but we have a lot of work ahead of us as we reopen uh, to, to be able to rebuild our society. And part of that is our connections to all over the world. World. We are a trading economy, a very open country here, and we need access to markets all over the world. So it's not as simple as just closing everything down. And Louise keeps talking about and Sinn Féin. Whenever it suits them, they change the story. They were, they, were, they were championing the cause of bringing people home in December. And then when that didn't work out, they changed their tune in January. It's not as simple as that as a government. We have to make decisions for the long-term viability of this country. Louise, isn't it important to try and maintain as many jobs as possible, particularly when you see this ESRI report coming out that's showing that people on the minimum wage are those who have been worst hit by the pandemic? We had a central bank report recently saying 100,000 jobs that have been lost won't come back. But young people are about to be hit so bad. Don't we have to protect every job we have? Absolutely we do. But we also need to look at... Uh 
what kind of society we are going to rebuild afterwards. So we know that Joe Biden is concentrating very much on the build back better. So, you know, make sure that we take this opportunity to rebuild. What the pandemic showed us actually uh, is that uh, there is an over-reliance in this state on precarious low-wage work on, um, you know, specifically in uh, in areas of in the service industry. So what we have effectively is too many people working in hotels, not enough people working in factories. And we need to look at rebuilding our manufacturing base. We need to look at bringing sustainable, decent jobs back. Because what that ESRI report showed us is that for people who are living on the minimum wage, they are way more likely to be living in a household with someone who's earning. So they're more likely to be young people living at home uh, with their parents. So, you know, if you're 33, 32, 33 years of age and you're on a low income and you're living in your parents' back bedroom, you need to know coming out of this pandemic that the government has a plan to rebuild the economy and to provide decent jobs. Now, I haven't heard that from the government and I hope at some point mm. that we will, but certainly that's where Sinn Féin's focus is going yeah, to be, is on rebuilding our economy and building decent I, jobs for people so that they can, there's, that there's, they can there's sustain. There's plenty of decent jobs in the hospitality and retail sector. I think it's wrong to give the impression uh, that those are jobs that we don't value because that's, that's the point you just made, Louise. And I just want to make I a point I was making a reference just, to low please, wage, point, precarious wage. There's about, about, about 110,000 people on the minimum wage in this country. And we are committing in this government to, 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 to over the time of the government, to move to a living wage. And, and the commission is set up to do that and the advisory group are in place. So that will happen in conjunction with the employment sector. But there's a lot of job opportunities now in those sectors to enhance that and to develop the skills as we reopen hospitality, as we open retail, a lot of opportunity there. But please, don't talk it down as jobs that we don't want to encourage. Of course we do. There's massive employment in the retail sector, over 300,000. And about 70,000 of them are on PUP now and they're not in their jobs. We want to get them back working and be able to and work Louise, with them. And Louise, is it really realistic to expect manufacturing jobs to suddenly return, given that we were priced out of the market previously and we had to replace them with tourism and hospitality jobs? But I think what we need to focus on, and I'm not doing down any You just job, did, Louise. Just, Sorry, just, but that's what hang you did on, Damien, just calm for a second. Don't be clear I'm not, that. Just calm for a second. I'm not doing down any job, but I certainly believe that we need to move to a more sustainable model because we cannot have a situation whereby we have an economy built off the back of low wage and precarious work. I mean, yesterday there was a rally online for the Deliveroo riders. They are people who are working in intolerable uh, circumstances. They are the victims, I would say, of uh, bogus self-employment and they are finding themselves in a very precarious situation. Now, when we rebuild, I'm not doing down the work they do, Damien. They work damn hard for every shilling, but when we rebuild our economy, we need to rebuild it in the interests of working people, not in the interests of a small few golden circle elites. And that's what I am not hearing from the government anything about that. We're going to leave it there. Our thanks to Lise O'Reilly for joining us. Minister of State Damien English is staying with us because after the break, will the vaccinated be back in the shops, hairdressers and at concerts and sports events before everybody else? And is the shadow economy unfairly impacting businesses following the rules? The shadow market is flying at the moment. Clients have been doing their own hair and they've been going to get it done elsewhere. We won't get back to where we were before this, yeah, pre-last March. There's no way. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. The Minister of State, Damien English, has stayed with us, but we're also joined by the economics correspondent with Virgin Media News, Paul Colgan, because, Paul, you had your documentary, The Arms War, on at half seven this evening. And in it, you looked at the vaccine rollout and also, as we saw in the clip before the break, looked at the impact at the moment of black market activities, things like hairdressing and personal service. Tell us what you found. Yeah, well, we spoke to Rachel Byrne, who owns a hair salon in North County, Dublin, about the struggles being faced by her sector and personal services in this very lengthy lockdown. And she said, look, it's a very simple thing. She walks up and down the street and she can see that people are clearly having their hair done somewhere else. And she says that she's been approached by clients asking if she would cut their hair, which she has refused to do. But she describes this as a shadow market. She says in the first lockdown last year, people largely stuck to the restrictions. This wasn't going on, but she feels now that people have lost patience and it's quite widespread that they're getting their hair done. And it's not only an issue at the moment, but she fears that it's going to be an issue down the line. And this is sort of what the central bank was talking about when it talks about structural change during lockdown, that industries are changing and that there will be lasting effects even when the restrictions so are lifted. So even when hairdressers are allowed to open again, it's possible that you will have freelance services going to people's houses rather than people going to the hairdressers? Well, it's two-pronged. First of all, people have realised that they can save a bit of money by going to the freelancer who's down the end of their street because the freelancer doesn't have to pay rent, they don't have to pay a mortgage, they don't have to pay utility bills, they don't have to employ staff. Uh, and secondly, people have also learned that they can perhaps do things at home that they didn't do previously and they can extend out their visits to the hair salon or the barber. So instead of visiting them every six weeks, they visit them every 12 weeks. And what Rachel Byrne said was she's in a situation where she's now technically in arrears. So the, the mortgage holidays that existed last year with regards to the banks, they're gone. So people are falling into arrears and their credit histories are being affected at the same time she fears that those clients who are going to the freelancers won't come back to her and she will have to rebuild her business and pay down that debt in a scenario where the tide has gone out somewhat. David, what are you going to do for these people? Look, there's a range of issues there, Matt. Uh, and again, what, what Paul has said there kind of coincides with what we've been, feedback we've been getting from the industry, from the sector as we meet them ourselves because we've been meeting all the various groups and trying to work through their needs during the last few weeks uh, of, of dealing with restrictions and then as we reopen what, what will be required as well. And the big issue has been from that sector is going to be, or uh, has been the black market. Will their customers come back? Will their staff come back? Because in some cases there's been a loss of skills. So we, we'll be working with them around that skills agenda again, trying to, trying to, trying to upskill existing staff or new staff moving into the sector. But it's been well commented on by Taoiseach Tarnas to both ministers of finance, that there will be need for ongoing support for business as we reopen as well. 
we've seen over the last 12 months, we've stepped up as much as we possibly could as a government with the various supports, various schemes, responding to the different scenarios. But that is going to be needed as we reopen as well. And that's what we're doing at the moment, looking at each scheme. But doesn't that suggest you're going to have to reopen as quickly as possible? Well, Even on a public health guidelines, mm. you're, there is a risk of people going to people's houses, which mm. they're not supposed to do. I, I, but leaving that aside, mm. you know, if you have a situation, surely you have to leave the hairdressers and various other retailers open as quickly as possible mm. to stop this bleed of business and to get cash in. Well, I mean, naturally, from, from our point of view in the Department of Trade, we want to have business open as, we poss as soon as we possibly can, based on the health advice. And naturally, we would hope that, we, that the numbers would have allowed uh, a reopening quicker uh, during the month of April. But we have to be cautious to make sure it's a permanent reopening. The worst thing we can do for any business is let them reopen and then lock down again. So I think that's why, in conjunction with the vaccination rollout, which is now moving at a decent pace, I think we can get it to reopen sustainably, keep these businesses open and help them regrow well, again. But are these businesses then looking for things like vaccine certs so that people could come and purchase services on the basis that they have a vaccine uh, certificate? Well, certainly they want to get back as quickly as possible. In personal services, that's something you hear time and again. Why wouldn't you allow older people to now come into the salon if they're, they're, they're fully vaccinated? What's, what's to stop that from happening? But also hospitality, because the narrative has been for some months now that we're looking at a summer of outdoor dining only. And I spoke to Dave Morrissey, who owns and runs the, the Porterhouse Bar in, in, in central Dublin and also what used to be Lily's Bordello. And that's the point he made. He said, if we have these fully vaccinated frontline workers, fully vaccinated pensioners, what, why are we not allowed to bring them indoors and keep everybody else outdoors, people who don't have the vaccination cards, keep them outside for the summertime, bring everybody else in, let us get open that bit quicker because... Whilst the supports are quite considerable from government, there's only so far that they can go. And the Minister for Finance very early on last year uh, pointed out that we can't save every business here and there's going to be business closures. So the indus those industries that are hardest impacted need to get open that bit quicker and get the cash in because the cash is the crucial thing. Mm. Why not? Well, I mean, that's exactly what we'll be doing as quick as we can open up the businesses. We have seen, um, you know, changes in the advice for, for household visits for, for those who've had the vaccine. So I think anything we can look at in the, in the months ahead to get customers back into businesses we will look at. It's, we have said that we hope to have a summer similar to last summer, which did allow for and did have uh, people eating inside as well in, in, in certain areas as well as outside. It, well, a lot will depend on the next couple of months with, with the vaccine rollout. Thankfully, the supply but, but seems surely, to be coming in. Surely you shouldn't really have is. tighter restrictions this summer compared to last summer that's what I'm when saying. so many more yeah. people when people well, are going to be vaccinated yeah, this that's, summer. Well, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. I think we should be able to see at least what we had last summer. It's not an assumption. Surely a lot more if you no, have vaccinated people. Again, that's why I'm saying to you, the next two or three months, are, or next two, two months are key with the vaccine plans. Thankfully, the supply is coming in. We know that we'll have three million more doses administered before the end of the June. So we're in a very strong position to have a much better summer than last year. I, wasn't, I didn't make the comment about only outside dining. I'm saying we should have much more okay. than that. But Paul, is there not a danger as well that we create a two-tier society here again, another division in society, that there will be people who'll be able to go to sports fixtures during the summer, concerts, inside in pubs and restaurants, if they can produce a vaccine certificate and the others are pariahs left on the outside. Well, that's certainly a consideration, but from, from businesses' points, point of view and, and workers' point of view, getting anybody in through the door is mm. the priority at this stage. And whilst there might be a bit of envy and jealousy among those who don't have 
the, the vaccination cards and presumably most of the people who will be looking to go out and avail of hospitality and nightlife are going to be younger people who are going to be vaccinated at the end of the process. Uh, from, from the business point of view, it's just get them inside as, as much as you can and get the cash flowing because we also spoke to insolvency experts who said cash is, is king. Uh, supports will keep you on life support, mm -hmm. but you could open up and yeah, find that the industry has changed, the supports are gone, and things have changed so dramatically that you're trying to rebuild your business in a scenario where you don't have government support and the customers aren't there anymore. Okay, that's all we have time for tonight. Our thanks to Minister of State Damien English for joining us and also Paul Colgan. I'll be back on radio tomorrow and Today FM tomorrow afternoon. If you missed Paul Colgan's documentary, The Arms War, well, you can catch up with it on the Virgin Media Player. So that's all we have time for this weekend. Kira will be back here on Monday night. So if you have a great weekend, stay home, stay safe and have a very good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>